0: Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Stephen Kostansky, a filmmaker and makeup artist who's worked on everything from Crimson Peak and Suicide Squad to Hannibal and Star Trek Discovery. But he's at his most eccentric and interesting when he does his own thing, writing and directing lovingly retro projects like Manborg and The Void. His latest, Psycho Goreman, mashes up E.T. and the Toxic Avenger and a bunch of other stuff for a very specific and kind of adorable salute to elaborate mythologies, spectacular violence and, somehow, Spielbergian suburban drama. It's just arrived on VOD and you need to check it out. Steven chose Mortal Kombat, Paul Anderson's 1995 adaptation of the immensely popular video game series which pits fighters against one another until someone's head comes off. The movie's a little more accessible building a slender but solid narrative around the battles as Robin shows Liu Kang, Lyndon Ashby's Johnny Cage, and Bridget Wilson's Sonya Blade are chosen by Christoph Lambert's Lord Raiden to travel to a mystical island for a tournament that will keep the Earth safe from the monsters of Outworld, assuming they win. The stakes are simple. The combat, mortal. You know the deal. This is someone else's movie.
1: When I first threw that in, I was like, you know, I was excited because I love that movie I want to talk about. But then I started, like, having... Like anxiety about, like, did I pick a movie that I am just going to get made fun of for liking? No, but, uh, that is so I, not uh, what
0: this show is.
1: I figure uh, it's a, it's not the obvious choice. Uh, I am sure you get when you do this, you get people picking, uh, you know, far classier films that they want to use to show off their film knowledge. But to me, this movie I have such a like special attachment to it because it was such a good theatrical experience for me as a kid that it is one of my like formative experiences as a filmmaker, like I, I'm always chasing the high that I got when I saw that movie for the first time, because I, I don't think I've ever been that excited, uh, watching a movie in the theater. Okay. So well, that is had to be my pick.
0: That's pretty much why I thought you would pick it based on what you do and, and your work. It's like, Oh, uh, I can see this. There's a straight line, but <laughs> so, yeah. So let's, let's actually get into that. Um, how old were you at that time when you saw it in 95?
1: Nice. So I would have been nine years old. And so it was PG 13 and based off a super violent video game uh, that I remember my dad uh, got like a, a bootleg PC copy of it. Uh, Cause his friends that he worked in Manitoba Hydro and uh, in the drafting department, he had friends there who uh, also like, you know, PCs were pretty early in the early nineties. Like that was still kind of a new exciting thing. And so his friends we'd get him uh, like on floppy disks, like bootleg copies of games and he'd bring them home and he'd load them up on our home PC. And uh, so I have a very distinct memory of him sitting at the computer and being like, hey, Steve, come check this out. And I come over and he boots up this game and just this big Mortal Kombat title screen comes up with a big like, da-da. And I remember my mom in the background going, Michael, why did you get him that? Like, I just remember her immediately being pissed off that my dad got this notorious game at the time. So I was a huge Mortal Kombat fan, uh, like, played the hell out of that game. And being a PC game is one of those games you had to put in, like, a code from the manual to, to even get into the game. So my dad had the photocopied version of the manual that I would go through to get whatever, you know, it'd be like page 12 paragraph three line two, whatever and you'd have to find the word and enter it as the code so i was a huge mortal kombat fan and as a kid i was obsessed with anything that was an adaptation uh because and i've always found this fascinating any kind of like cross media content like something that's either like a cartoon that becomes a movie or toys that become a movie. Right. Uh, Or like, yeah, movie that becomes toys. Like any kind of back and forth I was all about. Um, And as a kid, especially in the 90s, movies were still top dog. Like that was the thing that like, if you can make it to a movie that's playing in theaters, like that is the, in my mind, even though it's not accurate at all, I thought that that was like as good as that story was ever going to get. So you know, to me, like, the Masters of the Universe movie was, like, that's what a He-Man story is ultimately gonna be, is that movie. As much of a, you know, dud as that movie is, still, to me, like, the flashiness of it and the production value just, like, connected with me on, on, like, just such an instinctual level that I just would fall in love with all these things, any kind of adaptation of something. Like, you know, obviously, like, like the Batman movies were a good example too. I was all about those, um, and, and so to go back to Mortal Kombat, I played the hell out of these games. And I remember, I think it, it must have been like like some family gathering. I want to say maybe like an Easter dinner or something where there was a commercial for uh, Mortal Kombat, and it had that theme song, that awesome theme song from the movie <laughs> that is Wolf forever be my favorite song ever cuz it's just so exciting. It's the most exciting techno beat in existence in my opinion. And so <laughs> that commercial came up is playing that song and I see like I see Scorpion, I see Sub-Zero, I like see Luke Kang, I see Sonya, I see all these characters I recognize realized on the big screen like like coming to theaters like Mortal Kombat, like that game that you love is now going to be a just this total kick-ass movie and so i was completely enamored and i remember when it came out uh my mom did not want me to see it uh <laughs> and like i don't mean to constantly rip on my mom for trying to be a responsible parent she was protecting uh, you yeah she was trying to protect me but the side effect of that that i don't think parents realize is that when they're trying to keep that thing from you that just makes that thing it puts it at like a mythical level yeah. that you're just making it more enticing. And so, you know, because it was PG-13 and I wasn't 13 yet, the logic was I shouldn't go see it. <laughs> but I just would not stop. I, you know, I was like a pretty low-key kid. I didn't like throw tantrums or anything. I, I wasn't that dramatic. But for this, I made it a big deal. And I like petitioned hard <laughs> to go see that movie in the theater. Um, and so finally my parents caved my dad took me and my brother to go see it. And the, and I will forever remember sitting there and the New Line Cinema logo starts and you hear the guys scream, Mortal Kombat! And that theme song kicks in. And I, if there, if I have even a slight chance of going to heaven, that will be the first thing that happens is I will see that logo and hear that theme because that is... Maybe the happiest I've ever been in my life. I was so excited. I could not have been more jazzed to watch a movie. And as a kid, that movie gave me everything I wanted. I mean, people rip on it for not being violent enough, but that movie to me proves that violence is not everything. That, you know, there is something to be said for production design. And the story, the actual craft of the storytelling, and the action itself—I think the movie delivers as like a martial arts action fantasy movie. I think it it uh, does the thing that a lot of video game movies don't do, which is it goes back to what the actual source material is, which is not like like not just Mortal Kombat the game, but really that game is a riff on Enter the Dragon, mm-hmm. and so. I think to do a proper video game adaptation into a movie, like you need to kind of analyze the movies that influence the game and not just look at the game and be like, okay, we got to just do this sequence of events that happen in the game. And so I think the Mortal Kombat movie does that really well, where it has like a kind of similar setup and through line to something like enter the dragon where it's, it knows that it's a tournament movie and it commits to that. And it doesn't like like it just kind of like keeps the basic tropes of a tournament fighting movie with little hints of fantasy and that kind of spectacle thrown in. So i think that's why it succeeds in way that in ways that like let's say Mortal Kombat Annihilation the sequel does not succeed. Yeah. I love that movie as well. I think it is an awful mess that i also need to give some credit for influencing me as a filmmaker because it was the first movie that I was able to watch uh, like on my own because my dad actually moved a VCR into our basement in was in '97, yeah. And so it was my first chance at being able to watch movies and just play them back on my own. So I was watching this movie obsessively. We had a dubbed copy of it, of course. <laughs> uh, my dad, my dad, the media pirate. Um, so we had this dubbed copy that I would just watch over and over again, and I'd pause and rewind on some of the effects to try and see like, Oh, like how did they do this thing? Like, uh, like trying to decipher like, when was it like a miniature and when was it CG? And when was it like, you know, like what's composited, what's not, uh, because that movie's effects are so clunky. It's really easy for like a a kid to like break it down and be like, Oh, this is, this is the process that went into achieving this effect. And so that's why I appreciate that movie because, it was like a little bit of a, a home film school in a way, uh, like just seeing kind of behind the curtain of how movies made because the effects are so clunky. It's easy to pull it apart and figure out like how things were done. Yeah, but I, uh, The first one yeah. doesn't have that,
0: does it? Like the, the first movie, I, I saw it theatrically at a press screening uh, with an audience. The, the, oh, I wow. Probably would have been like the Wednesday or Thursday before it came out. And I have to admit, I was not uh, expecting anything at all from it because the marketing was kind of, you know, it's the medallion look on the poster the, the horse yeah. face and like stuff I didn't even care about because I was not, I was not a big player of the games. Uh, I knew they were out there. And I remember the controversy every six or seven weeks when some cable barking head would realize it was violent and, like yeah. Back when there was one issue that kept coming back because nothing bad was happening in the world in 1995.
1: Yeah. Hey, remember, remember those simple days where ripping on violent movies and video games was yeah. an innocent discussion to be having?
0: Yeah. And it was an evergreen, right? Because there was always a new movie coming out or there was always a new game. Yep. There was always something the same people could get upset about. And that was my entire understanding of Mortal Kombat. And then I get the... I get the invitation, which at the time was a fax from the distributor saying where (laughs) to go. Yeah. And, uh, that was fun. That was a whole different world and (laughs) it was, it was not too far from my apartment. So I walked down and saw it, sat down and the same thing happened. It just, the movie just starts screaming at you and and it take, it took over and I enjoyed it. And I, I, I have to admit, I haven't thought about it a lot since, but then I rewatched it. And it's like, you know what, this holds up. Um, It holds up in a really strange 90s kind of way, specifically. It's
1: so 90s. I love it. (laughs) It's like a little grungy, but still polished. Yeah, It's in the era of like early CG. So like the CG in it's so clunky that it's charming. Like Reptile is very charming to me because you can tell they're just like, here's a new thing that we just got. Let's try this out. And no, it's not convincing at all. But I, I like the imagination on display. The movie has a lot of energy and imagination that I feel like movies now could learn from. Because, it's
0: enthusiastic, right? Like it, it yeah. is really, it's Paul Anderson having a great time with the toy box, like seeing what you yes. can play with and just throwing it at the screen. And I really, I have to admit, I, I underestimated uh, Christophe Lambert his performance is like, he's having a great deal of fun and he's, yeah, he's like the host of the movie sort of, and he knows it even if nobody else does.
1: Yeah. It's, it was a smart choice on their part to make Raiden like kind of the Yoda of the movie. It's It's weird because that movie then influenced every subsequent game because now the mythology of mortal Kombat has a bunch of like residue of that movie. Like Raiden is always the like wise, sage, good guy character that's kind of orchestrating all the good guys, which in the original game, he's just another fighter who just happens to be the god of lightning and thunder. But the movie made him into the character that he is. And also, all subsequent games have adopted uh, this idea that Kano is Australian, which was not a thing in the original game. But every game since then has totally taken uh Trevor Goddard who plays kano like they've taken his performance and adopted it in every subsequent game because everybody loves that character so much he has so much personality like I feel like that's a that's a thing that the whole movie does well is that whether it's working or not it's always charming to me like they're always doing they're always trying something whether it lands or not it, it doesn't matter to me because I'm hooked because I just find the personality of it so engaging in a way that a lot of video game movies just feel like a messy product that's like, here's just a bunch of stuff thrown together. Here you go. Like, like comparing this to like the street fighter movie, I think it's night and day. Like this movie feels like a real movie to me. Whereas the street fighter movie just feels like a mess of scenes slapped together because you can tell they didn't, they didn't like have somebody at the helm that was passionate about what, the street fighter story is whatever that even is. Yeah. Whereas I, you felt like Paul Anderson loves mortal Kombat, So he's like, I'm going to make the mortal Kombat movie I want to see. And that's what he did. And it works.
0: Yeah. I guess I, I I'm weirdly fond of street fighter and super Mario brothers as well,
1: just because oh, I've grown to appreciate them. For <laughs> sure. but I, I have to say though, as a kid, I did not like either of those movies. Right. Like see, they did not land with me. I think as an adult, I like them a lot more because I love weird misfires of movies. Like, there's nothing more interesting to me than, than somebody getting handed a, a Super Mario Brothers movie and being like, you know what? We should put some like Blade Runner in this. Like, yeah. wouldn't that make sense? Like, I love those kinds of misguided ideas. Like, that is one of my favorite parts of the filmmaking industry is like what the decisions that lead to a movie like that. Okay. uh is so interesting and crazy but i don't think either of those movies are as entertaining as mortal kombat because mortal kombat to me has like real heart to it it's like a corny 90s uh kind of like popcorn blockbuster kind of part but, but it still works like it's still effective to me so yeah. that's why I, I put it above all other video game movies
0: I think, well, yeah, I I think that's absolutely fair. And the things that fascinate me about Super Mario Brothers and and Street Fighter are exactly what you described, which is watching people try to solve a problem that doesn't exist. Like, how do I make this into a movie? Well, you take the story and you make it into a movie, which is what Mortal Kombat does. It just finds ways to only do that, whereas the other two are just heaping on stuff. I mean, Street Fighter, the, the language of M. Bison's country is Esperanto because that's fun. And it is on the page while you're trying to figure out how to make the movie work. But then once it actually happens, it doesn't add anything to the experience. And yeah, Paul Anderson's genius, I think is getting out of the way, like making sure every fight sequence looks a little different. Isn't quite the same. Like he doesn't repeat the video game, but he, he he
1: structures, he structures it in a way that works really well. And I feel like it's a good template that, that I think he is lifting from a lot of Asian cinema, obviously like their martial arts films. Uh, but he he knows how to pace out the fights and structure them so like like he knows that he, he can't use like he can't let the fights get in the way of the story and at the same time he can't let the story get in the way of the fights so right it's a fun balance that he does where like he he knows we're getting to the climax we're gonna have our showdown with Shang Tsung he knows that that is narratively important and that there needs to be drama there drama is the priority for that scene so that's why i feel like the end fight is more about drama between uh lu kang and shang sung so there's not a ton of like exciting choreography it's more just about performance so knowing that he he like curveballs us with that reptile fight right before where you're not expecting that like i flipped out in the theater <laughs> when reptile gets thrown into that statue and then turns into the ninja reptile and then the voice from the video game says reptile i like you again like that opening you could not find a happier moment for me in my life but uh so then he has this epic fight that's all about choreography and delivering on the promise of like excessive punching and kicking so it's like He does that. He gives the audience what you're paying to see ultimately is this, like these kinds of fights and then gets it out of the way. So when he gets to the climax, it's all about like wrapping up the story, the drama between Liu Kang and Shang Tsung and like making it like a real movie climax and not just like whatever that climax is at the end of street fighter, (laughs) where it's like, uh, Bison starts flying around for some reason. Like there is no drama in yeah. those scenes in Street Fighter. It just feels like people like showing up on set and being like, "I guess he has rocket boots now, so let's do that." Like, <laughs> like there isn't really the kind of proper like narrative escalation, I guess that you want uh in the story that you're trying to tell. I think part of it too, going back to Mortal Kombat being a riff on Enter the Dragon, is like. I don't really know as far as like movies go, like what Street Fighter is kind of like the based off of, and same with Super Mario Brothers. Like I feel like those games almost are so devoid of narrative that that's probably why they went off the rails so badly because they were just trying to come up with something to justify Mm -hmm. what's happening. That's what video game adaptations always seem to be is like figuring out how to justify that thing that everyone wants to see right. and getting lost. They're just getting lost along the way. And so I think, yeah, like, like I'm trying to think of other examples of video game movies that maybe were a little more successful. Yeah. I have not seen that Sonic movie, but people said it was okay. People seem to like uh,
0: it. Yeah. I have not seen it either. Um, Doom is one that I keep thinking about in that it oh man structurally does what is required, but it doesn't work.
1: It doesn't work. It, it just, I saw that movie. That that is a, that could be a whole other podcast because I'm, a huge, <laughs> I'm an insane Doom fan. Like my video games as a kid were Mortal Kombat and Doom and Wolfenstein. And okay. I just played the hell out of those. So the idea of there being a Doom movie, totally like I, I knew that that was going to be the next Mortal Kombat experience. Like the way that I totally lost my mind seeing Mortal Kombat in theaters, my hope was, oh, the Doom movie will do that as well. And boy, was I disappointed. Like, And this is the thing that crushes me about it is it commits the worst sin of this kind of adaptation where you have source material that's jam-packed with spectacle and stuff that should translate to the screen. And it's like they take that and they just make it boring. It's people walking down dark hallways with flashlights. And it's like, this is not building tension. This is not telling me a story. This is not giving me characters that I'm interested in. I'm just sitting here bored. I actually, like I was so in denial about that movie that I actually saw it three times in the theater. I kept taking a different friend because I kept thinking like maybe this time it'll work. Right. But it never did. And it's a movie, I still, like I'm still in denial. Like I still put it on sometimes thinking like maybe there's something here. I Like I own it on DVD and Blu-ray. Like I feel like once a year I give it a shot hoping like maybe this time something will click and it doesn't. So yeah, that is a, a depressing example of a video game movie that doesn't work. I mean, I remember kind of liking the first Hitman movie, but I oh, feel like that. Yeah.
0: I remember it, the style it, of it more than anything else, and and just that, just like, oh, this is this is an interesting physical performance from Timothy Oliphant, and he's like he's doing the thing that Michael Shannon can do in his sleep, which is give nothing back, yeah. which is a really interesting yeah. performance in a in a leading man but oh yeah Oliphant is just so interesting an actor that you're just aware the movie isn't doing anything with him and then like the empty spectacle around that. him just becomes numbing
1: yeah i just remember that movie because those games are clearly riffing on something like the professional right like i think that movie kind of pulls from that type of storytelling like i'm just thinking of an example of another video game movie that has a movie as a reference point mm-hmm. and so i i just remember that one at least feeling like it even though i remember feeling very much like a like straight to video action movie like it still felt like a movie whereas yeah. i think a lot of these video game movies don't even feel like a movie like i mean to go back to paul anderson i have a very love hate relationship with the resident evil movies yeah uh, i'm kind of the I same was, way i like liked the I won, first one a like,
0: lot and then
1: Yeah, even the first one, like I keep giving it a chance, and I have days where, like, viewings where I'm into it and I'm like, this is super fun. And other times where all I'm seeing are the seams and the warts on it because it definitely has problems. I have a soft spot for the second one, Resident Evil Apocalypse, because it's such a Toronto movie. (laughs) Like, it's literally just every scene is like, oh, that's City Hall. That's, oh, that's like, you know, that's on Bathurst. That's, you know, like, it's just all these very recognizable spots they're not even trying to hide yeah there's a west end pizza
0: pizza in there somewhere if i remember correctly
1: yes they're yeah the main strip i think the stars team is like fighting zombies uh is around that pizza pizza and also that bridge uh was it like going into the east end uh that bridge is heavily featured just yeah lots of stuff i feel like in the in the like skyline shots too you see like don't you see like CIBC or something? It's I like a bunch so, yeah. of like very recognizable like Toronto buildings that they were like we don't need to paint this out. This is Raccoon City, yeah. I guess. Yeah,
0: nobody knows the Scotia Bank logo here. It's fine. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Nobody cares, it's right? Because like, the uh,
0: climax is it is at Nathan Phillips Square with the New nuking. Yes,
1: of- yeah, that whole climax where uh, Mila runs down that uh, runs down the building, which is a great right stunt. I have to yeah. say, yeah.
0: I got married in that building, not at the same time, obviously, but yeah, it was, (laughs) there was a moment where it's just like, Oh yeah, this is where they shot Resident Evil Apocalypse.
1: I know. I feel like that's my favorite tidbit to tell people, even though it's like (laughs) the people I'm telling could not care less about Resident (laughs) Evil. I'm like (laughs) fun fact about Toronto. This is where they shot the climax of Resident Evil Apocalypse. And they're like, I don't even want to continue this (laughs) combo.
0: The least memorable of the Resident Evil movies. But yeah, it, it does illustrate the central problem with any video game Adaptation, which is these things are designed to be played over and over and over again in the same exact way. And story becomes much less important. So if you have to turn it into a narrative, you have to come up with stakes and characters and things that you can relate to. And and again, you know, like even just the whole runner of Johnny Cage being the white savior who doesn't actually save anything and and ultimately steps aside. That was really surprising in the nineties. And I it's weirdly progressive.
1: Yeah, I know. That's a thing I realized too, is like the Johnny Cage character is the comic relief. It's like doing a little bit of a big trouble in little China. Yeah, exactly. I really appreciate now. Like, yeah, like the movie does a lot of things that I feel like we've almost like taken steps back from since then where it's like harder to do now. And it's like, like, yeah, having Robin Shu be the lead of the movie is, is awesome. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just there's just so many fun things about that movie that I love, and yeah. there's just so much creativity on display. And I was reading up like behind the scenes facts about it, and like, apparently the second part of the scorpion fight, so where they like go to that weird hellscape, Johnny Cage fights scorpion. Right. That was a reshoot. Like they added like that. The original version of the movie that they screen tested didn't have that fight, and actually the I think it was the reptile fight it didn't have. And they realized, like, we need more action in this movie. So they went back and shot those. And I think those are kind of the best fights in the movie, too. But it's cool that they had the resources and the, like, know-how to think, like, okay, we got to deliver on this. So let's give two solid fights and let it just be about that. It's like, I, I know some people rail on martial arts movies like this because it's like the plot stops to let people kick and punch each other. But I think those two sequences are great, are well-timed and great opportunities to just like relish in choreography and the spectacle of, of fighting. So I really appreciate that the movie has that. Cause you look at something like street fighter and they fully admit that they had like no choreography going on in that movie. Like the fights are awful. Yeah. Like, like it just looks like high school kids running around, like pretending to make a movie at times, like it feels so cheap.
0: So, I think it's the studio it, the nature of it, right? Like it feels like they're boxed in at every turn by the limitations of the sets. Like if you punch someone too hard, he'll go through a wall rather than bounce off of it. And everybody's <laughs> being really careful. Uh, Mortal Kombat oh, yes. is like uh, every episode, every episode, every fight is a demo reel for itself, which I kind of admire.
1: It's, yeah. It's like, no, and I love that it kind of has a bit of video game logic where every fight is in a different location which has different geography. Um, And it's not just like video game logic. It's also just martial arts movie logic. Like environment is so much of a component of a good fight sequence that you have to like plan your movie around that. Whereas I feel like Street Fighter, they, they thought like, oh yeah, we'll have like these two characters fight in this scene, not realizing like, oh, they're in a really tight contained space and they can't do anything. You know, whereas Mortal Kombat, I think they were like, This this is going to be our location for a fight. How do we accommodate that? And so having ramps and things and stuff that can like environmental things that can get knocked over uh, to kind of just make it dynamic and keep it visually exciting.
0: Yeah, and it feels tactile in a way that a lot of subsequent movies don't because they were working with um, either elaborate sets that couldn't be. The only other one I can think of is I recently rewatched Blade, and. Love Blade. It still holds up, right? But there's also an appreciation for the physical action in that movie that has that sort of translates over from Mortal Kombat. And they're both from New Line, and they were both kind of trying the same thing ultimately. Like New Line is trying to launch these action franchises that did and didn't work on their own terms for their own reasons. But their their pre Matrix thing is that everything is like intense and tactile. And they back now that I think about it, both Mortal Kombat and Blade open with elaborate techno sequences. The oh rate, yeah, the, blood
1: yeah they, the yeah, you're actually making a comparison I'd never thought to make before. Those movies share a lot of similarities, and I agree that they're like pre-Matrix movies that had a respect for martial arts, mm-hmm. like as an art. Yeah, where it's like it's like clearly the people making the movies had watched martial arts movies before and knew like that this is a thing that needs like time and respect uh, and like some filmmaking prowess to like. Shoot around and make work um, in ways that other action movies don't. Like, you know, because both the movies, like, I guess there's some gunplay in Blade, but Mm -hmm. it's like there's so much about hand to hand combat in ways that other action movies, I think, at the time weren't. Or other action movies where like fighting was just like grappling and punching in the face. You weren't like, you know, doing a flying kick and like, you know, uppercutting somebody. Yeah. Well, like, there was a little bit more to it.
0: Yeah. And these were also the response to the Jackie Chan movies that New Line was importing. New Line and Miramax were sort of fighting each other in the mid-90s to get stuff.
1: Right. Uh, I guess that was all in the same era was when all those movies, like, I guess, when was Rumble in the Bronx? Rumble in the Bronx would have been
0: like, Rumble was the first one that broke here. And I think that was 94, 93 or 94. It was right before the the wave. I mean, it was the wave. It was the start of the wave because right up until Jackie Chan broke in North America, it was, you know, Seagal. And, um, that was, those are, those are technically martial arts movies in that a person is standing still and slapping people who come at him, but they're not really (laughs) like they're American films.
1: Yeah, exactly. They still have American sensibilities. Whereas, uh, you make a good point that with this influx of like kind of Asian cinema and like martial arts movies like I think people are starting to become more savvy to those types of movies and seeing like the kinds of spectacle that you could get from other parts of the world that North America wasn't delivering on. So yeah, it feels like Mortal Kombat and blade were like a direct response to that where it's like, we got to step up our game and uh, start in- inserting this type, this to North American audiences at least like new type of action that we hadn't seen much of like, really since like, I guess the Bruce Lee days. Yeah. Like,
0: and the choreographers were trying to come over because Hong Kong was about to be handed back to China in 97 and nobody knew what that was going to be. So there was this influx right. into the, into the West of, of Asian martial arts, like everybody, the stunt teams, the actors, the, the choreographers. And right. somehow it just generates this explosion of like movies that are really in love with the physical possibilities of martial arts action and what Mortal Kombat adds is the visual admiration, um, right? Like, it it actually stops dead and watches the fights in a way that none of the other movies yes. has time for.
1: Yeah, it doesn't feel like it needs to edit around things or, like, shoot things in close-up. Like, that movie does it right, where it's like, we've got some good choreography going on, go wide and show it happen, and, like, let's really enjoy it. Because that's that's the spectacle of the movie. That's, like equivalent to like doing an elaborate space battle for Star Wars, but not like punching in too close and not showing it. It's like, Mm. instead it's like, you know, real physical tactile things happening on camera. Like you want to see the human special effect you want to see happen in all its glory. And I think the movie does a good job of showing that.
0: Yeah. I think weirdly enough, the only present day equivalent is the John Wick films, which are just like stuntman. Admiring their own work, but in a in a fun cinematic way,
1: yeah, I mean, I wish there was a little bit more like storytelling and filmmaking going on in those movies if that makes sense. I'm like trying to be nice about <laughs> it I do love I love those movies, and I'm so glad they exist, but i I just wonder what it would be like if you gave them like like if you had a a more established filmmaker like take the reins, but still let the stunt guys like craft the sequences and kind of make it more of a collaborative process um, to, to yield a result of something like Mortal Kombat where you have like you feel like the director's stamp on it you feel visual flair and like real drama in the storytelling but you have these great fights that are shot properly and are well choreographed and look cool so I would like more content like that uh, going forward I mean I don't, I don't have time to watch a lot of stuff. So maybe there is things out there that I just haven't seen, but I do miss that era, like the mid to late nineties into early two thousands that, uh, that era where we had this huge influx of, uh, martial arts movies. And, you know, like the Jackie Chan into Jet Li era was a really formative era for me. Cause I remember, yeah, renting all those movies and, uh, just losing my mind at the fights. It was a good time to be a movie fan.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm aware that there is a reboot coming produced by James Wan, which was shot like two years ago, I think. And it's supposed to come out on, oh, here it is on the HBO Max streaming service on April 16th, 2021. Yes, it's
1: one of the ones that Warner Brothers has in their slate of like blockbusters that I guess was supposed to come out last year that they've been sitting on. So now they're just going to put them all out on HBO max, which is disappointing because I mean, I want to see that movie in a theater. I want to see if it can match that experience that I had with the first one. Uh, But I am excited for it. I mean, it it looks like it's got a a good cast and should be fun. I mean, James Wan's a very passionate filmmaker. I, I really like a lot of his stuff. I think he's a guy that really gives a shit and throws everything he has at projects. So As a producer, I hope he's doing that with Mortal Kombat and keeping that tradition alive of like fun action fantasy spectacle. Yeah, I think we could use some more of in the theater right now.
0: And this one is supposed to have an R rating, so we will finally have the fatalities that everyone demands.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is also the thing, uh, like with video game adaptations nowadays, like it's different from the 90s and the 80s doing these adaptations because. The games were more primitive back then. So, that translating process, it felt like an up, like an up conversion, like you're going from like 16 bit to real life. Whereas games have, to me, have surpassed movies in a lot of ways. Like, their storytelling is getting so much, so much better than it used to be. Like, and the the graphics and just the games themselves are just becoming such epic pieces of art on their own with no restrictions that it kind of feels like a step back to make a movie now. So I wonder like, will it be able to match the heights that the Mortal Kombat games have gotten to recently? Like I've played the last couple games and they're pretty insane and have really (laughs) epic stories. They're not like they don't hold back and the fatalities in them are totally insane. So I'm curious to see how they plan to match that, uh, with a modern film, uh, what they can do to like, you know, be a strong contender as like the dominant mortal combat media right now.
0: Yeah. I mean, mortal Kombat annihilation already showed us what doesn't work in a movie. So hopefully they've learned from that yes. as much as they've learned from the games.
1: Yeah. Hopefully they leave the animalities out. Cause that clearly didn't work in mortal Kombat annihilation. Oh, I totally uh, and- forgot about those. Yeah, and Liu Kang turns into that dragon, and Shao Kahn turns into a Hydra for some reason. Yeah. yeah. They're weird. It's like so clunky, it almost looks like stop motion at times. But uh, yeah, can leave that out. And hopefully, they get a costume designer that doesn't just get a bunch of spirit Halloween costumes, because that was another thing in Annihilation they seemed to downgrade on was the wardrobe. Like, I love the outfits in the first Mortal Kombat movie. Like, I love how all the ninjas, like, their masks are. Kind of like they look like they're made of stone and they've got like a lot of fun detail on them. Like that movie knows how to keep the iconography of the original source material intact while still building on it and making it, uh, like advancing it in ways that it's like fun and exciting without totally like losing what made the original charming. Like it, it keeps the color schemes and all the broad strokes are the same, but they just go in and like add some detail to make it feel a little more impressive and yeah, not feel like a shitty Halloween costume.
0: Yeah. And that's something that, that you've paid specific attention to as well in your films to, to segue in there. Uh, Cause the attention to detail in psycho Gorman is just adorable. I mean, I, I Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's, I just, I love the idea that you're watching a movie that someone worked on physically actually worked on. Cause it's something we're getting further and further away from now. Yes. But, practical effects are still so satisfying. It's something the actors can relate to. It's something the eye catches, the camera seems to love them.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a thing that I'm, I'm glad has had a bit of a resurgence I feel like the past decade, we've realized that this is like, this is how you tell an engaging story that is like a fantasy or sci-fi or horror thing is like, you need to have the real thing there for it to work. For actors to yes, like you said, have something to act against, um, and to just show the audience that like this is the real deal. Like when you just paste in a CG thing, like and there's no disrespect to VFX artists. Like I love a lot of CG. There's some stuff that's super awesome out there right now. I'm impressed with what they can do, but it's just not quite the same as like somebody had to go out and sculpt and mold and cast and paint and apply this character makeup on somebody like there's there's an artistry to that a real tactile artistry that can't be denied and i'm glad that uh you know lots of productions now are into it uh i mean i've got plenty of work going forward uh working as a creature effects artist in toronto like so many shows are utilizing practical effects that i have no shortage of work which is great um and yeah pg was just a great excuse to visualize all the wacky monsters I had bouncing around in my brain because uh, a lot of it came from sort of half-thought-out ideas for other movies that I didn't really know what to do with. And so when I landed on the premise of PG, of like these two kids unearthing this ancient monster in their backyard and uh, going on adventures with them, it was such an easy clothesline to hang all sorts of random practical effects stuff off of. And it was easy to just kind of slot in the craziest gags and the craziest creatures I could think up because it was such a simple premise. It was easy to, to go big with my ideas uh, because it didn't really, it, it was, a, it's like a premise that doesn't need to be cohesive. And the charm of it is making the, making the universe feel big by having as much variety as possible. So yeah. it was a great excuse to just make as many random things as possible.
0: And it also felt to me like a, a really comforting throwback film to the kids in sci-fi wave of the eighties and the movie and even movies like the gate where it was incidentally kids and, and genre, but it was still, oh yeah, the, you know, the opportunities you have to put small children in, in giant scale, jeopardy and monster danger, because on some level, I know that like the movie is going to look out for the kids and it's, 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 yeah it's, it's not the sort of film that ends with, um, or even starts with a sense of menace that, that, is a negative... I don't know how to describe it. It's that that friendly vibe of the movie, which can still create peril, but the movie knows everything's going to be okay, more or less, so we can enjoy
1: the, yeah. uh, the ride. Yeah, well, I mean, I wanted to have real stakes and real peril in the story, but I also think because the movie is so intimate and really like the character story that I'm telling, like the core story of Mimi and Luke's relationship as brother and sister... And uh, kind of like the, the arc of that relationship is so simple and I put so much importance on it that it's like any, all the other parallels doesn't matter because that's really what matters is like the family story at the core of it. And so all the violence and the chaos that happens while impactful to like everybody around in the movie, like lots of horrible things happen to people in the movie, sure. uh, but I feel like it ultimately doesn't matter because really what matters is like Mimi and Luke and PG and kind of their their dynamic and how they affect each other and that kind of simple kids adventure story. Um, and the violence almost becomes like a punchline in a lot of scenes where it's really just just a way to like throw a curveball at the audience and have a few surprises uh, in between the more dramatic moments and to deliver on some, some of the spectacle that I want out of this kind of movie, that kind of action spectacle.
0: Yeah. Uh, like I said, when you picked Mortal Kombat, I immediately understood why
1: it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, it's definitely an influence on PG in terms of like the kinds of movie out uh, movies I want to be making, which is stuff that's like, 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 Crowd pleasing, and I mean that in the most genuine way possible. I feel like when people talk about like popcorn movies and like like feel good movies and fun movies, like it really pisses me off that that's like got a stigma to it. Like that's not a thing to be respected. Where it's like, oh well, if you're not, you know, making it this depressing drama or like, you know, a, a deep like dark meditation on like some serial killer it's like then your your content is not valuable where it's like i i like fun upbeat stories and i like to feel good and i like like that energy of like a really satisfying moment of spectacle where everything in the movie like like merges together into just like the best feeling ever like that's that's what movies are to me that's what i want them to be that's where i get all my enjoyment and so I just want to keep making stuff like that. Like I want to make fun, exciting movies that have people like gets people talking and saying like, oh, wow, that was a totally crazy thing. And like maybe inspire some little kid uh, who watches it to make their own crazy monster movies someday because it sparked something in their imagination. I think it's an important part of cinema uh, to have uh, some fun spectacle thrown in.
0: Well, before we started recording the episode, you and I were talking about having worked in video stores at different points in our lives, and that's something I think that's really lacking now. That that and and just the fact that cable doesn't exist as cable anymore—that you can't stumble. I mean, I can imagine someone picking up the void and kind of falling into it, discovering it that way, and realizing that it's a gateway to you know Carpenter movies from the '70s and '80s and, and a whole bunch of other things that all work in a synthesis to tell the story that it's telling. Yes. But unless you stumble across it, you'll never find it because it's just lost in all the tiles that are out there now, because that's where people discover things. And
1: yeah, it's not the same kind of discovery. Like looking right. at a thumbnail is not the same as picking up a box and reading the back of the box and being like, okay, I got to check this out. Like, <sighs> will there ever be a scenario where, friends on a friday night are like let's go rent a movie and you like you go not knowing what you're going to get and you just walk in and it's like you're reading boxes you're talking to your friends you're like oh i watched this thing it was really good here's another movie by that director let's maybe check that out and it's like it's weird that in this age of like all the information being instantly accessible it's like somehow everything feels like lost and adrift like Like I don't feel connected to any of this stuff in the way that I used to when I worked at a video store where I was surrounded by people with different tastes and opinions who would recommend interesting and offbeat things. And just in the adventures of me scanning the movie aisles myself, I would find a weird thing that I'd never heard of. I'm like, I'm going to give this a shot. So yeah, it's a little sad that in the streaming era, we don't really have that because I think it's, it's an important experience uh, in how you enjoy media. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of other components outside of just watching the thing that makes a movie or a TV show, what it is. Uh, like for example, I am watching star Trek, deep space nine right now with my girlfriend. And it's, uh, like watching nineties TV and kind of like spacing it out. So we're watching maybe like an episode or two a week, uh, is like a fun experience that it makes me nostalgic for that era in the same way as movies where I miss like it's, it makes me miss like commercial breaks and ads for the next episode. And like throughout the week, seeing the ad for the episode and being like, Oh man, like I can't wait to see what happens like next week. Like, and with movies, like the act of like watching trailers or seeing TV spots on TV uh, for a movie that's coming out or seeing like a poster at the video store coming soon. Like there's so much ancillary stuff with media that has just been lost because we've reduced it to such a simple, like easy to consume format that I think like we've, we've lost a huge chunk of what makes this stuff fun in the first place is like the adventure of discovering things and the discussion around it. Uh, Like all the stuff that happens when you're not even watching the movie, but it's still in your brain, I think is super important. And we don't really have it in the same way anymore. So hopefully someday we get back to something like that. Uh, Because yeah, I don't find it as satisfying. I don't remember even half the stuff that I watch on Netflix anymore because it's like I consume it and then it's gone. And then everybody talks about it that like that following Monday. And then you never talk about it again. Yeah, it's like I would be real depressed if like I was making content that just came and went as quickly as that. It needs to be you want to make things that have impact. And it's hard to have impact when you're in like this totally disposable kind of system.
0: My thanks to Stephen Kostansky, whose new feature Psycho Gorman is now available to rent and buy on digital and on demand. It's bizarre and endearing and you should watch it. Thanks also to Ingrid Hamilton and Macy Armstrong. They know what they did. Stephen's not on Twitter, but you can follow his movie at Psycho Goreman, all one word, and you can find Mortal Kombat on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment. It's also available on Apple TV and Google Play, and streaming on Sci-Fi and DirecTV in the U.S. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days in addition to writing about film, television, and everything else. Go check them out. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-C-A-S-T, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps, it truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Stay inside, watch movies, or a mask if you go out. I'll see you next time.